0: All right, thanks. All right, I'm going to start back here. I can't promise you I'm going to stay back here because it's a small group and workshop gives me lots of leeway. I'm Josiah. Thanks for coming out. I'm glad I didn't have to drive and park. You would have seen the L.A. me. You know, my sponsor talks about uh, as a result of his recovery, he's retired his driving finger. Um, really glad I don't have to contend with that. Um, Was everybody who's here today here last night? Everybody here last night? So there's a few. Okay, who wasn't here last night? Cool. Oh, good, good. I get to inflict myself on you anew. Um, I I chose this topic of the 10th step. Um, It was a little bit of a cheat, really. I I was sort of put on the spot, and I said, so we want you to do a workshop the next day. I said, great, I love that. Um, What do you want to do it on? And and for me, really, the the thing about the 10th step is that it doesn't really narrow the scope very much. I said last night that I think the 10th step really is about um, the things that you did that made you get so much better in 4 through 9 are so good that you should keep doing them. So really it gives me half of the steps to talk about again and in more detail. And with you, um, really, because I, I since it's a smaller group, I want to be able to have you guys participate. Um, really a, a big part of what I get out of my program is, is working with sponsees and going to meetings where it's not just me yapping. Because as much as I get out of listening to me, and as much as it is all about me, I really do um, learn a lot about what's going on with me uh, by hearing you. Um, so I do want to do that. Uh, and I want to start out um, by doing a little bit of this. Um, so everybody here have more than a year? Everybody more than a year? Anybody less than a year? Okay, good, cool. All right. Um, how many here have a sponsor? Nice. How many of you spoken with your sponsor in the last week? Yes! I love that. I love that. That is so cool. How many of you are working on a step as we speak? Very nice. That involves writing. Right on. That involves writing. Not just, well, I show up and carry the message. <laughs> or or carry the mess, depending on how you work. Okay. Um, how many involved in service work? God, you guys are good. You don't need me at all. Oh no! I think I need you way more than you need me. Um, that's nice. You know, I, I I talked a little bit last night about how I came in, and I was when I first came in, I was just looking for you to tell me how it was. I was going to communicate my message to my alcoholic clearly enough that she would get it and stop doing what she was doing. That was really what I was about. Um, and and I and I didn't get that I had to work on me. I didn't get that she was a lost cause, or she wasn't, and there was nothing I could do about that. So when you guys, and really the program I came into down in L.A. was exactly the program you guys are working. You know, you guys were busy with sponsors and steps and service, working on yourself, making your lives better. And I was focused only on my daughter. So all that stuff that you guys are doing and that you guys were talking about made no sense to me. It was a Charlie Brown cartoon. Womp, 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 womp. I understood nothing, nothing. Um, and so, you know, I, I drifted away. As Dave said when he introduced me last night, I drifted away for a while um, because clearly you were of no help. <laughs> and, and, and so the reason I came back, when I came back, the only way it worked for me was that I came back and, and I didn't think that I, I had to grab my kid by the lapels and tell her to stop. I thought she had stopped and the other alcoholic in my life was a sober member of AA so I didn't have to grab her by the lapels either. And that's when I was able to hear what you guys were talking about. That's when I was able to hear you say, we're coming in here to make ourselves better to figure out what it is about our wiring that makes these relationships so haywire. And we're doing these things for ourselves. Sponsorship and service and steps didn't make any sense to me because I was looking at how I was going to fix her. It sounded like a good idea if she wanted to come in and do those things for herself, but it didn't make any sense to me, for me. So I come back and I'm not necessarily trying to get her to stop and you guys are talking about the things that you're talking about, doing the things that you're doing, and I see it. And so I I came in and I got a sponsor and I started working steps. And what has become clear to me over the years of doing the steps myself and and working with sponsees is that this piece that I think the 10th step represents is probably the most powerful part of what the program does for us in terms of helping us to systematically change who we are and how we act and what we believe. That's what this is about, who we are, how we act, what we believe. And so, um, like I said, I cheated a little bit and said the 10th step so that I could talk about this whole process This thing that we do. And I I don't want to make light in any way of the spiritual part of the program because I believe that um, at the end, that's really what it's about. But as I said last night, when when you come in as I did and you're really not looking for anything that you think resembles a religious solution, um, the idea in the first two or three steps and in, in the 11th and 12th steps of this being something that is focused on as a spiritual program uh, isn't anything you're really interested in. And for me, the spiritual part of my recovery has come about as a result of the steps. You know, I have recovery because of the steps. I have a spirituality because of the steps. I don't have recovery because of my spirituality. It's backwards for me. And, and, and I think it, it may be more true of, of, of some of us men you know, who want to know how things work and want to know how things can be fixed, if you can come in and say, okay, there's these things, they're numbered, do them in order, do them with someone who's done them before, and things will get better. And by the way, you don't get to ask how, just trust me that it works. And so um, it, that's been a big part of, of, and it continues to be a big part of the message that I try to carry, um, because that way I, I, you know, I don't have to have any kind of a philosophical debate with people who come in and say, well, I don't believe in God. And I tell them, you don't have to. In fact, I have a lot of fun with my atheistic sponsees because I tell them that if they're actually willing to work this program, they're probably showing me more faith than the people who believe. Right? I'm telling you, you need to change your life, you need to do things differently, and you're stepping off that ledge without a belief that anything is there to catch you. You're just going to have to take my word for it. (laughs) Really? So I've got a couple of guys that that I tell them I'm astounded by their willingness to try things differently because they say that there's nothing there. But um, this process of inventorying and then amends is, is to me, like I said, really a very, very big deal. Um, And just sort of mechanically... um, We said there's going to be a break since it's a relatively small group. uh, We'll we'll see how we do by noon. Uh, But since we started a little late, maybe we'll go straight through and stop early and eat Um, because that's really all I've done since I've gotten here is sort of eat and pitch and eat and pitch and and sleep and eat and pitch and it's a nice gig if you can get it. By the way, thank you to Reflections in the Committee for your generosity. You have fed me well, even if you don't know it. Um, And thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, guys. new discoveries in the culinary greatness of the Portland environs. Um, and just enough Starbucks that I don't fall into a pancake coma. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really believe that um, one of the one of the features of being an Al Anon is is this tendency to have this really bright spotlight focused on an alcoholic. Al Anon's an interesting program because to qualify for it, there has to be some sort of a train wreck personified by another person in your life, right? The only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a family member or friend. Right? Somebody's life has to be a train wreck in order for us to get here. And that and that has to matter to us. Because if you didn't care that somebody's life was a train wreck, it'd be like that guy at the freeway off ramp with the sign. You drive past him and you forget about him. So, somebody's life's fallen apart and it matters to you enough that you're willing to spend a Saturday in an auditorium like this. It's and it's not even raining. I was told that this is Oregon Spring. Come on down to LA, I'll show you some spring. Right now, in fact. I left 75 and sunny to come do this. Willing to go to any lengths. And I love you. Thank you. Um, but so, really, it matters enough to us that we'll go to a church basement on a Tuesday night and sit in a steel folding chair and put up with each other. It, it matters enough to us that we're willing to do the things that you guys just told me that you do to get sponsors and work steps and have service. Um, and, and by the way, you know, the service that you're doing here to put this thing together is very impressive to me. Just like the service that I see at home. Uh it amazes me what people are willing to do for no other reason than that it makes them feel better. You know, and um, I understand that because I get to do that in sponsoring men and speaking and things like that. And you know <laughs> I, I love it when the men that I sponsor thank me and just are so amazed and I don't know how you do it and you take so much time and I I try to tell them, you don't understand. I get way more out of it than you do every time. And I do. I said last night that I have a meeting on Wednesday nights at my house of the men that I sponsor. People are constantly telling me, thank you so much for having us. And I tell them, really? All I do is open up the garage door and put chairs out. And a meeting comes to me. I don't even put the chairs out anymore. I just let them do it. <laughs> a meeting comes to me. I don't even... <laughs> I, I come out in my sweats. We sit down. We have a meeting. I don't have to drive. I don't have to park. Boy, today that would have been nice. So anyway... Um, but like I said, this inventory process is in, in some ways the scariest and most unlikely thing for an Al-Anon to do. We come in here, our focus is on someone whose life is a mess. And we're convinced, I was, and I think it's pretty true, that if they only fill in the blank, then we would be fine. Um, so let me get an idea. Are, is anybody here strictly because of ACA type issues? I grew up in alcoholism. Just because of that? A few of you. Okay, not many. Um, the, the rest of us, it's a spouse. How many for a spouse? Or a significant other? Yeah, there we go. Okay, a child. Oh, yeah. We're, we're the ones with the black belts, right? Um, it, when you're an ACA, it's a little bit different. You know, you grew up in it. And, and it's not as if when it's your child, you think, you know, if Julie would just stop doing that stuff and straighten her life out. She's such a gifted child, if only she, you know, that nonsense that you do. Um, In ACA, it's a tiny bit different. um, But really, we know that we've got our focus on somebody else, and if only they would fix it, we would be fine. And then we come in here, and if you stick around for a minute, you realize that everybody in here who's doing the work is saying, I've got to fix me. And to me, in some ways, that is the most unlikely paradoxical thing of all, that Even though that child of mine is ruining her life behind drug use and alcoholism and other really bad behavior, we won't even start about the tattoos and the piercings and the boys and all that. But if she would only stop that and act responsibly and behave herself and do just some basic things, then it would all be okay and I could go back to living my life the way I should. So now you're going to tell me I need to do an inventory and I need to work on my character defects. What? I'm outraged by that, right? But... Again, as I said last night, if I've, if I've really taken that first step completely and with conviction, then I realize that I'm powerless over any of that, no matter how wrong she may be. So I come in here and I figure out what my character defects are by taking a searching and fearless moral inventory. Okay, now for some fun. Who's done that? Okay. Who is not? Cop to it, cop to it. All right. Who's afraid to? Right? How many of us are afraid to because we think we won't do it right? Oh, really? God, that was my deal. I was afraid I wasn't going to do it right. How many of us are afraid to because we don't want to know what's there? There you go. See? Okay. Okay. How many don't want to because you don't want to have to fix it? Yeah. Right. Right. How many think you have a character defect that you're a nag? Nag. How many of you are a nag? You know, one of the things that I like to do with it, here's part of the reason the inventory process is really important, because we're so focused on them as a train wreck. We don't have a very good vocabulary. We're not very skilled at looking at what our stuff is. I could have given you a detailed inventory of my daughter's problems when I came in, but really had taken no time, didn't have any skills at looking at what my problems were, didn't have words for it. I said last night that one of the most powerful things for me when I first became a member of my men's stag home group was when a guy who looked from the outside like he had it all together said that he was a liar and a coward. And I had never thought of using that word to describe the man that I felt I was, but when I heard it, it rang like a bell. (sighs) That's me. So part of what's really important in the inventory process and part of why it's a two-step process that involves telling it to someone else, hopefully someone who's done that kind of work before and has some experience with it, is that we start to get better at describing who we are. We know there's a problem. We're aware enough of the fact that we have to work on something ourselves that we're willing to do what we're doing. We don't always have great words for it. One of the things I do when I work with the men that I sponsor is they'll call me up and say, I'm effed up, I'm spun, I'm any number of other sort of interesting code phrases that require me to stop and say, okay, tell me how you feel. And they'll do that, and I'll say, no, let's put a word to it. So that's why the first question I asked was, how many of us are a nag? Let's just put it in one-syllable words. Are you a nag? Do you say it more than once? Louder, in different words, sneaking up around the side, right? As if... Right, they're not alcoholics, they're hard of hearing. They must be. Okay, so so as simple as that, sometimes let's just put a one-syllable word to it. I'm a nag. Right? Which means how many of us are controlling... Right? We want our way. We want our way. And, and you know, um, I'm a big fan of the AA literature. You might have gotten a sense of that last night. Um, one of the things that Bill Wilson talks about for the alcoholic, and by the way, I think that Al-Anons are almost all of the time just alcoholics without the allergy. Really? You know, it's all we do is we have an alcoholic as our bottle instead of, you know, it's just once removed. Uh, and so... A lot of the insights that the alcoholics have about themselves are very helpful to us. They did the field research for us. <laughs> and got arrested and beaten up and fired and divorced for us. And, and, you know, one of the founding members of my home group calls himself, uh, Alanonic Pat because he says he's an alcoholic without the allergy. I, I like that. Um, so, at any rate, we're controlling. And, and the AA literature talks a lot about how what's underneath all of our character defects is fear, an unbased, irrational fear. And so you're controlling why, because you're afraid of the outcome that may occur if it doesn't happen the way you think that it's supposed to. Okay, here's one that's one of my favorites. How many of us are doormats? Woohoo! Boy, I tell you what, when I heard that one when I came into Al-Anon, it's another one where the bell just rang doormat (gasps) that's me and isn't it isn't it ironic here's one of the things again it's interesting in doing 10 step work or, or fourth and fifth step inventory work where it's good to be saying this stuff out loud because you think that if i'm a nag and i'm a bullying controlling person then that describes me but wait a minute i'm a doormat and guess what we can be both kinds of jerk all at once Right? So, you know, when it comes to something trivial like putting the toilet seat down, I can be an absolute jackass. When it comes to something like, you know, you need to finish your education, I can be a complete doorman. You know, so the hard stuff, I I get walked all over. The easy stuff, I'm a complete pain in the neck. Right? Just pick your battles. The ones you think you can win. (laughs) So, so at any rate, the idea here is, is, you know, I talked last night about the four column inventory, um, out of Alcoholics Anonymous, which, as I said, I really believe in because for me, I came in here wanting to fix the alcoholic. I came in here not wanting any of the God stuff. You know, I came in here defiant and afraid and angry and hurt. And so, what has worked for me is, First of all, the gentle, patient approach of the program. You know, I was, can you imagine that people might bristle at my personality? Can you picture that? (laughs) Not everybody likes me. Not everybody gets me. Not everybody wants to put up with me. But here's what I got in Al-Anon. Josiah, keep coming back. You know, we'll love you in a special way. (laughs) I get loved in a special way a lot. Um, You may not like all of us. Uh, so, uh, first of all, the patient approach. You know, you can show up at meetings forever and never get a sponsor and never work steps and never do any service work, never pick up the phone, never read a book. You will never be asked to leave, at least not in the meetings I go to. Eventually, if you keep sharing the same stuff because nothing gets better, people may kind of roll their eyes at you. Really? Eventually, if I'm your sponsor and you're calling me with the same stuff, I'm gonna ask you if you'd like to work on it. And then I'm gonna tell you, you know what, I gotta run. Because I've gotta have some boundaries of my own as a sponsor. But you don't have to do a thing. And that was nice for me because I came to it at a pace that, that worked for me. But, for me, you know, what happens is I sit in groups like you guys. Where you are working the steps and you do have sponsors and you are doing service. And you know what happens? I watch it. I do. I pay attention. That's one of the, one of the things, it's a character defect I have as an Allen on that, that sort of spotlight, that radar, that's actually an asset if it's done in reasonable amounts. And that is I pay attention and I watch. What happens with people like you who stick around for a long time and who do those things is you get better. And a lot of times you don't even notice it because it happens so gradually. One of the lessons that's the hardest for me to convey as a sponsor to guys who are new is that it's a process. I'm constantly telling guys who want to rush through their steps, I need to finish my fourth step. Okay, you can finish your fourth step. But please understand very clearly that there's no magic bullet in this program. Finish your fourth step. Finish all 12. But the process is going to be a process. And you'll get better in God's time. Or in the program's time, or whatever. I tell people, it's not surgery, it's erosion. It's a process, not an event. And so it happens slowly. But, when you're watching it from the outside, as I watch you, you see something. And if you've been around for a little bit, you see it in others. And you get better. You get better. You know, you do things like retire your driving finger. You do things like shutting your mouth. Even in the meetings, things change. I'm really sure that I have some good ideas about how to make my home group better. Can you imagine that I have an opinion about stuff like that? Moi? You know, if you cut out that reading, if you took away that step study that doesn't really work. You know, we have a format at my home group meeting that was that was drawn up when the meeting was 35, 40 people. There's now 120 What worked really easily with 35 people doesn't necessarily work with 120. You know, passing one book around and reading steps doesn't really work that well. So I have opinions. I went to um, one of the longtime guys who does a lot of speaking and service work who's got some really good recovery, and I said... Gee, Jack, how do you manage to put up with this nonsense that goes on in these business meetings? What are we going to do with this group? And he just laughed at me, and he shook his head. He said, Josiah, trying to make changes in this meeting is like herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed, and I got it. And, and you know, really, he said it in a way that I, I could hear. So even in the meeting itself, there's growth and change. So now... Most of the time I don't even attend the business meetings, because I still have some really good ideas. So if I don't attend the business meetings, I won't impose my good ideas on them. And I, and I allow myself to get the recovery that is there. So anybody else have the character defect of some good ideas? Anybody else have the character defect of being right? I call my sponsor all the time. This was especially true when I was in this relationship with this sober alcoholic. And, I, and then when I finally came up for air, he would go, Josiah, you're right. <laughs> now what? Right, now what? So what? So what? You're right. Go back to the first step. Of course she should stop drinking. <laughs> but guess what? She's not necessarily going to do that. So... um what i what i go about the business of doing uh, in in my inventory whether it's a four column inventory or it's a 10 step inventory is trying to get an idea of of what it is i'm doing who journals anybody journal yeah who's journaled within the last week nice you guys are good I used to hate hearing people hearing people at meetings talk about how they wrote because writing was the one piece of of this stuff that came last to me that i hated the most I'm better at it now. I made a New Year's resolution a couple of years ago to write, and I write at least once a week, but I hated it. Um, one of the things that's valuable about it for me, and, and I think is valuable for the men that I work with, is that we have a tendency not to want to look at this stuff. You know? And those of you who raised your hands and said you didn't, hadn't done an inventory and didn't necessarily want to do one, I can understand that because I never wanted to know. But really, it's important for me to understand what I'm doing, or not doing, as the case may be, but what the behaviors are because for me i think it goes through a couple of different layers and and the layer that we can attack that we can do something about is the layer of our behaviors right so so some of us are, are spies right any of you spies come on come on you watch your alcoholics behavior don't you or or your boss or your kid or your neighbors all right if you don't like calling it spying how many of you will go to the mall and just watch people and have an opinion where does one buy an outfit like that exactly? Do you suppose she paid for that haircut? Right. So these are the things that I need to do. And I need to understand how I act. I said last night you know, about my daughter that, that one of the things I recognized after not being here for very long was that if she professed a need for transportation, I would have my car keys in my hand. Or professed a need for some kind of economic support, my wallet would come out. I need to figure out what I'm doing because my behavior I can change. And I think a big part of the inventory process as it leads into the amends process is about about changing some of my behaviors. And so this 10th step process that, that we engage in is one where I mindfully go about the business of changing my behavior. Sometimes I like to say that the most spiritual thing I do in the day is to get up and make my bed. Now, clearly not necessarily by itself a spiritual act, but what I do is I make my bed mindfully, understanding that I want my bedroom to look nice, that I'm taking a moment for myself because I do like the way it looks. I've got some nice linens and a bunch of pillows I put on it. Little girly guy. Uh, (laughs) And my bedroom looks nice when I leave. And And I go about this and I understand that that's what I'm doing. I'm changing my behaviors because... I do a couple of things. One is I rush around in a huge hurry to get wherever it is because I know something really important is about to happen somewhere else. (laughs) The other is I have a tendency to neglect myself. right? So part of it is I have to take a minute and say, yes, I'm going to take the two minutes it takes to make my bed. I'm going to finish taking care of me before I go off and, and start working for other people who pay me generously, but it's for other people. And this 10-step process is one where I give myself credit for the things that I do for myself. You know, I I think that a big part of what fuels the Al-Anon's tendency to have to fix other people and to have to focus on other people, all of the nagging and controlling and doormatting that we do, is because of how we feel about ourselves. I think that the the Al-Anon's conviction that somehow it's his responsibility or his fault comes from where we are from ourselves. And, and and for those of you that have done specific ACA work, you probably realize that a lot of that comes from what you interpreted the message to be as a child. Somehow it was your fault. Somehow you were responsible. Somehow you were unworthy. We talked a little bit about that last night, this sort of family of origin stuff. And, and to me, you know, it, If you haven't figured out that your character defects come from your upbringing somehow, then maybe there's more work to be done, because almost always they do. Every once in a while it's something twisted that we come up with original on our own, but most of the time you learned it. You know, my my dad grew up with an alcoholic father, and I didn't know for a long time that my father was an untreated Al Anon. When I first started going to ACA-focused Al Anon meetings, it was because of a girl. She was going. That that woman I was dating was starting to go to some ACA meetings, and I thought, well, I'll go with her. (laughs) And then I started hearing people read out of that survival-to-recovery book. (sighs) What? You know, I was convinced I did not grow up in an alcoholic home. Part of it was because my father... Ooh, secrets, secrets, there's a character defect, hmm? (laughs) Right? My father was a secret keeper. He did not want to talk about his alcoholic father. He did not want to talk about the argument and fist fight that ended his relationship with his father. And he had half siblings that he basically disowned, that I I didn't even really know about growing up, because he wanted to separate himself so much from the alcoholism in my family. And he did it because he had good intentions, or not. Um, But it took me a long time to put two and two together and realize that, (sighs) of course I'm an Al-Anon. I grew up with an Al-Anon father who taught me well. You know, This nut did not fall very far from that tree. And, and so that's what this stuff's about. And and you know, part of the thing that's been good for me in the inventory process is to go back and make sure that I that I write about my parents and my siblings and figure out a little bit about what it was like growing up. Um, so uh, the inventory process is important for for me to to try to figure out what my behaviors are. And and, and I do that so that when I get to the amends process, I can change them. And, and sometimes it can be as simple as. Yeah, you take a minute before you leave the house to finish taking care of yourself before you start going out and taking care of them. Right? Or you think about pulling out the car keys before you actually do it. And um, the nice thing about it for me is is that, you know, I, when I do this inventory process, I, I do it with a sponsor. Right? Did um, anybody do what I did at the beginning, try to work the steps by yourself? Yeah! In alcoholism, ISM, I sponsor myself. <laughs> right? Right. What's the first word of the 12 steps? We. We. Right? Um, so, not a good idea to do it by yourself. Um, who is afraid to ask their sponsor to sponsor them? Yeah. Who doesn't have a sponsor because you're afraid of asking someone? There you go. Um, First of all, the people that you're asking are going to be thrilled that you ask. Thrilled. Anybody that ever says no probably shouldn't be your sponsor anyway. Um, One of the things that I get a lot now, because people know that I sponsor a lot of people, is, oh, I don't know if you have the time. I don't know if you'd be interested. I don't know if you're available. And I just tell them, come on. I can only do one at a time. You're one. Let's go. Um, But, yeah, um, the thing about it that I like is, is that I was so afraid. And anybody that I've ever asked, and I've had several because I've had them die and, get locked up in insane asylums and get fired and move out of state. And yeah, I'm apparently bad luck, but <laughs> um, they almost never say no. They're thrilled to be asked. And if you're afraid, if you don't want to make that commitment, if you feel like you're asking someone to marry you, then um, just ask them to be your temporary sponsor. Simple. Just ask for a temporary sponsor. Or call them up and don't really say anything for a little while. Be coy. <laughs> I've got a couple guys that call me that are like that. Couple of guys that ostensibly have other sponsors call me anyway. So, but, but the, the important thing is not to be afraid to talk to someone else about it. Um, that the secrets thing is such a big deal. You know, I think alcoholism wants you one on one. Alcoholism figures that if it's a, it, you know, it's a fair fight if it's just you and it, it can take you. Because, because the power of alcoholism is compounded by our shame. We are convinced that somehow we should have been able to fix this, figure it out. Somehow we're the only people who have this problem, right? How many of us believe, come on, don't you believe that? I believe that with all of my heart and soul, that somehow I should have been able to fix it. And there's something broken about me. And, and maybe, I don't know, I don't know, ladies, maybe it's not fair for me to say this, but, but maybe it's a little bit of a guy thing, you know, guys fix stuff. And here's another one you'll be shocked to learn. I'm not a fixing guy. I don't really, you know, my tools are in a little drawer in my kitchen. Some of you women have more tools than I do. I've got a hammer and a pair of pliers and maybe some scissors or something that are pretty dull. I'm not a fixer guy. Um, I I bought some property recently, and and people kept asking me, so you're going to, I said, it needs a lot of work. They said, so you're going to do some of the work yourself? I said, me? Yeah, I'm going to do some of the work myself. I'm going to pull out the checkbook and pay the guy. And my family's appalled. My family, you know, my brother built his house, and, you know, my father helped him, and my mother's got a huge workshop. She's an artist and a sculptor, and even my sister has replaced her own kitchen sink. And I'm just not that guy. Um, And so, you know, what I have to contend with is the idea that somehow I should be able to fix stuff, and I know that I don't and can't. And, you know, as as I've grown in my recovery and as I've gotten older, I've really come to embrace the fact that I really don't want dirt under my fingernails, and that's Okay. That's just that's just the man that I am and who I've become and and, you know I'm confident enough in my abilities and in my manhood and everything else that I do that that can be okay today. But but coming in here with an alcoholic daughter, um, I was pretty sure that somehow I should have been able to prevent that, to fix it, to cure it. I was pretty sure it was my fault because you know I shouldn't have left their mother when they were so young and whatever all that stuff. Somehow it's my fault. You know, completely disregarding the power of alcohol and drugs to capture someone, completely disregarding that there's a hereditary component, and there's a grandfather m- lurking in the background who had, had alcoholism. You know? And of course, the interesting thing for us is, here we are believing that we're horrible, terrible people. Oh, we're so bad. And yet, that notion that it's our fault and we should have been able to fix it is one of the most arrogant ones you can have. We have this upside-down kind of arrogance. Anybody define arrogance as a character defect on your inventory? Yeah. Not me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, right, you know, we talk a lot about humility in our program, and it's a lot about that. Sometimes it's about just letting yourself off the hook. I know that um, I was talking to one of the guys who comes to my Wednesday night meeting this past week, and uh, he's got alcoholic sons. And he's had to learn to keep his hands off. And so he's got a kid right now who is apparently going to school and doing reasonably well in school, but clearly still drinking. And he is so uncomfortable with just letting that boy be. I feel like I'm ignoring him. I feel like I should be doing something else. And so as we change our behaviors, we have to learn to get a little more comfortable with it. And, you know, he's another one. who wants to fix it. And, and so, uh, as I said, what we do is we identify behaviors in in the inventory. We also identify some of these beliefs. You know, for me, I could identify the nagging and the arrogance and the doormat stuff and I also had to understand that the reason that I did those things was because of what I felt about myself. Somehow I wasn't a good father. Somehow I wasn't a good person, you know. My behaviors in my relationships always come down to the notion that this is the only woman who would ever want anything to do with me and I have to keep her no matter what. Right? And, paradoxically, have to make sure that there's one or two lined up as potential candidates in case she leaves. <laughs> because, God forbid, that I ever be alone. Right? And, and, and I never, you know, it took me a long time to realize that I had to examine that part of it. You know, morbidly afraid of being alone. And, and yet, you know, now I've been single for a while and I kick around my little house all by myself and... and mindlessly being just fine with all of that, and then look up and go, oh, this was the thing I was afraid of. <laughs> so, at any rate, like I said, I, I have to get down to these beliefs that drive the behaviors, just so that I'm clear about them. But I really think that it's more about, as we as we move into the amends portion of it, it it's really more about changing the way that I act. If... I behave as if I am worthy of love, as if I am worthy of having a good relationship, whether it's with her or not. And if I don't act desperately and clingy and needy to this person, I I will slowly start to shift those beliefs. If I show up as if I'm a good employee and act as if I'm worthy of their hire, I can slowly start to work my way down to their beliefs. If I act as if I don't have to do everything Julie wants me to do to be a good father, then I can slowly work my way down from the behaviors to the beliefs. Here's how it works. I used to think that I had to make up somehow for the fact that I was a bad father, that I divorced their mother, that I was somehow responsible for her alcoholism by trying to make sure she was never unhappy as I realized that those behaviors were unhealthy both for her and for me, as I realized that those behaviors came with strings attached, namely in the form of resentments for how dare she, right? Then I thought, okay, I have to change that, change that behavior. Changing that behavior, stopping those things, requires that I believe at some level that I am still a good father even if I stop that. So the mystery daughter, the other one I never talk about because she's not my alcoholic qualifier, is a great example of that. About, it's been about five years or so now, about five years ago or so, she stopped communicating with me. We didn't talk a lot, but we would text or email and, and get together everywhere once in a while. And she stopped responding to me. And it took me a little while to realize. And I thought, well, that's weird. She's not calling me back. She's not emailing me back. She's not texting me back. And so... I checked it to make sure, yeah, she's not calling me back. And so I talked to my sponsor about it, and I ended up writing her a letter, an old-fashioned paper letter that I put in the mail. And and I said, it seems that you're not talking to me. Not really clear why that is, um, but I'm getting from that that you don't want to communicate with me right now. I will respect that. I will not contact you, um, and... That's fine. If you want to have a relationship with me at any time, contact me and we can start fresh and no questions asked. And I sent her that letter and heard nothing. And I had no contact from her for about a year and a half. Killed me. But, but we talked about this the other day too, Dave. You know, it's this matter of I'm going to be that child's father for the rest of my life. I've got the advantage of time. I'm going to wait her out. And so the irony, of course, is that what ultimately brought us back together was Julie's most recent crisis. You know, Julie called me up and said, Daddy, I'm hooked on painkillers. I need help. And so we brought her down and we got her detoxed and moving her out of this... Have you ever seen a drug addict's apartment? Call Hazmat. (laughs) So me and Kelsey went up to move Julie out of her apartment and it was... It was, it was disgusting. So Kelsey and I are thrown back together after no contact for a year and a half. And it was as if nothing ever happened. It was the weirdest thing. And we've had a nice relationship ever since. But what was required of me was changing my behavior. I needed not to be this guy who had to fix it and to somehow magically make it as if I'd never divorced their mother as if I'd never left when they were little babies. I had to sit in that. And what that required, obviously, was a real exercise in faith for me, that it was okay. That it was okay. And that I didn't have to somehow magically make it all better. And and so, you know, looking back on it now with the lens of time and things like that over the course of the last five years, I see that it was exactly the right thing to do, even though it was incredibly difficult. I changed my behavior. I wanted to know what was going on and why and how could I fix it. Instead, I shut up. And I waited. Waited. And what that does is, at the level of changing the behavior, it's a relatively simple behavior. I didn't chase her down. You know, the stalker dad. Didn't have to be that guy. And I waited. And what it ended up doing was it sent me a message at a different level that you can be a good father even from this distance you know my oldest daughter my qualifier 28 years old one year old baby boyfriend family of the boyfriend all of that stuff i don't get to fix her one of the stories i didn't get to tell last night was i kind of thought she might have been using again things she said the way she acted and of course you know if if i've learned nothing else around here it's to not you know mind my own business not say anything But I woke up one morning a few months ago to a text message on my most recent and favorite addiction um, that said, Daddy, I need you. I looked at it and I thought, "Uh, I knew it. And so I texted her back and said, what's up? Question mark, put it away. Crickets chirping, right? Nothing. So I waited, waited. At the end of the day, I sent her an email. We had been talking about seeing each other that weekend. And I sent her an email and said, okay, so am I going to come see you Sunday? By the way, that text message kind of concerned me. And she sent me a return email, yeah, about that text message. And she had, in fact, been using some kind of prescription medication of some sort and had made the bright decision that if she just used it all up and then stopped, everything would be fine. There's one little... Detail, and that is the pesky issue of withdrawal. And so, you know, she was vibrating and sweating and convulsing on the floor and her her normie boyfriend came in and said, what's going on? And she copped to it and it was ugly. And the 1.30 a.m. text message was her, you know, sweating on the floor with her boyfriend yelling at her, daddy. So I stayed out of it. And she worked it out herself and talked to the doctor who said, "Um, yeah, you can't stop that stuff all at once. You need to wean off. And I just stayed out of it. My behavior changed. I didn't have to go fix it. I didn't have to yell at her. I didn't have to talk to the boyfriend. I didn't have to even offer assistance. I just listened. And what I'm doing is I'm working at my core belief of I can be a good dad even from a slightly greater distance. For me, the fun punchline to that story is about three weeks later, she called me. Now, understand, I don't know, teenage or young adult children, anybody? Anybody? Okay. Right. So text messages, emails, Facebook. Right. Telephone, in-person contact, not so much. That's my experience. I'm great Facebook friends with my kids. I know more about their lives because of Facebook than anything. Whatever. Um, so, so, but she called me. So it's a pretty shocking event by itself. She called me, Daddy. Guess what? What, honey? I got a prescription for medical marijuana. Um, great. <laughs> right? Non addicting, non narcotic marijuana. So I, I get to change my behavior. I <laughs> what did not happen is what? right no screaming matches no real and and the nice thing is that when you change your behavior consistently persistently over a course of time the worry inside that's that comes from that place of oh my god you know the the little person under the the burning building with the safety net that thing that we do that starts to change because here's what i believe as we change our behavior the world changes its what comes back to us changes. So instead of trying to fix her all the time, instead of trying to make myself okay and more comfortable by trying to manipulate what she does, I stay back. And instead of the sky falling as I'm convinced it's going to, things sort of eventually work out. Not in the way that they should, but they work out. And and I start to have the experience that I don't have to have things go my way in order for things to be okay. So that when I get that call that says I've got the prescription for medical marijuana, I think, okay, it's gonna be fine. I roll my eyes and I shake my head. I can because I'm on the phone and she can't see me. That's just my little thing. But it's fine. It's truly fine. And and so really what happens is we change the way that we that we react to our world and we get different messages that come back and and this is really big for those of us that grew up in any kind of chaos or madness or drama or scary violent stuff as children in alcoholic homes and the messages that came to us were of one kind and now we're adults we have some you know control over at least ourselves and our environment I'm constantly telling men that I sponsor you need to be an adult participant in this situation what's going to happen if (laughs) Well, if you don't want that, you can say no. You can leave. You can walk out. You know, remember that. You're an adult participant in that. What if she... Then don't. And so that's what happens to me, is I get to be an adult participant in my relationship with my daughters. And this is, I hope it's clear, this is a result of sort of the 10th step issue of you know, figuring out what those character defects are, specifically the behaviors, changing the behaviors in the amends process, And having that sort of trickle down and erode away at some of the beliefs. I used to believe that I was a bad employee. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't experienced enough. I didn't know what I was doing. Well, that resulted in me not trying very hard. That resulted in me procrastinating on projects. And that resulted in employers not being very happy with me. I was pretty convinced before I sat down with my first inventory, that lazy was going to be one of my character defects. Clearly, I'm lazy. Well, as I started to write and as I started to get more clarity and and journal more and hear more people in meetings and, and start to put the pieces together and connect the dots, I realized there were certain parts of my life where I was anything but lazy. If it was something that I was either good at or that was really important to me, I was a nut. I was completely on the other end of the scale. I get to my gym every day at 5 a.m. I work out five days a week. That's not lazy. But when it comes to work, sometimes I won't pick up a pen or a mouse. And, And so what I started to realize was that this issue that I thought was going to be lazy was really more about procrastination or perfectionism or fear than it was about lazy. I mean, going to the gym is easy. Up, down, up, down, up, down, count to ten, stop. Um, Right? No challenge there. Um, But the issue of work is, you know, I I have to figure stuff out, and and I'm a a professional. Um, And so I would freeze up, and it was really more paralysis and fear than it was lazy. And so for me, once I identified that behavior... Whether you call it procrastination or perfectionism, which is what I really think it. Perfectionism. Anybody else? Woo There you go. Perfectionism by over-performing and doing too much. Oh, good. And perfectionism by underperforming and not even starting. there you go. Isn't that weird? Both ends of the spectrum behind the same character defect. Um, so the amends for me, the change in behavior for me was, do it anyway. Sneak up on it however you have to. Just pick up the first piece of paper and go. My sponsor talks about the sharpening pencil syndrome. He'll, he'll talk about a writing project and he says he'll sharpen pencils. I don't want to really start. I'm sharpening pencils, getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. You know, I know that if I, if I ever work from home, suddenly the laundry needs to get done and the shelves in the refrigerator need to be rearranged. Anything but actually doing the work. And so the, the answer for me is show up. And just start. You can't do that scariest thing? Good, then do something else until you, until that's the last thing left. But keep showing up. Keep showing up. Don't quit. One of the most powerful lessons I've ever gotten out of this program is the first thing you ever told me. Keep coming back. Just don't <laughs> quit. Please don't quit. I'm a quitter. And the only reason that my life has turned around as much as it has in my recovery is because I've learned that no matter what, I don't quit. And, and of course, we've got, to, we've got to temper that because a lot of times, you know, how many of us have hung on to a relationship way past its due date? Ooh, that bad boy had an expiration date a long time ago, and it's smelling the place up, and we're hanging on to the back. Sparks coming off. I mean, that's what happened to me in my last relationship, you know. She called me up and says, I'm done. And I've done some inventory work on that. I realized, oh boy, we were done. Um, but, but as we noted with the perfectionism issue, either you work too hard or you don't work at all, this is one where, you know, I've got to not quit. I, I've got to know when I'm, you know, flogging a dead horse, but I've got to not quit. And, and so my, my work life has turned around because I just remain willing to show up despite the fact that I'm scared to death. And so what has happened is the simple behavior of continuing to show up and do my job is, is what the amends was for me. I talked about it a little bit last night, you know, trying to go to the former employer and tell him I was sorry for being such a worthless worker. And he looked at me, you know, like he had no idea. I had three eyes or something. But the answer is that I show up today in the job that I have that's got nothing to do with that one and, and act like the employer I should, employee I should have been then. That's the amends. That's the change in behavior. And what happens when you do that is that your employer says, wow, you keep showing up and working hard and doing good for us. Thank you. I'm in the job that I'm in today because my current employer saw me at my last job working hard and caring about what I did. And he said, well, I want you to work for me someday. I want the people that work for me to have three assets. I want them to be nice. What was it? Be nice, work hard, and I don't remember the third one. But but three things that he thought he saw in me, and I was shocked. I thought, wow, really? Smart, be nice, and work hard. And I thought, wow. Okay, great. I, I don't know where that happened, but it sure wasn't the guy that I was when I, you know, first became a working man. Um, so, again, this is part of that process, the, amends, the the inventory through amends process. And it happens in a big way when we do a four-step, but it can happen in the smallest of ways as we do ten steps. And, you know, I, t- I gave the example last night about, you know, goofing on a reading in a meeting and realizing that that wasn't the way that I wanted to act. Um, Another big deal in uh, in the 10th step for me, and and it's in the uh, AA literature, it's in the big book, and and it's a really important one for those of us, and and I think it's really common in Al-Anons, where a lot of our Al-Anon behavior is driven by this conviction that we're not good enough, that we're somehow not trying hard enough and that we're not worthy, and that is to do an inventory of the positive stuff. You know, at the end of the, of the fourth step, or the fifth step process with the guys that I sponsor, I say, okay, well, we've got a pretty clear idea of what your character defects are. Now I want you to write a list of your character assets. And that's a really tough one. How many of you guys have done character asset work? Nice. How many of you had trouble coming up with any? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Here we are, you know, really the best intentioned of people, trying really hard. We're not the ones getting drunk and getting arrested and, you know, throwing up in the bushes. And yet here we are going, oh, yeah. And I tell people, I sit with guys that I sponsor and I say, how about Courageous? Here's a guy doing a fifth step, a man talking about how he feels and what's wrong with him and all that stuff, sharing it with someone else. How about Courageous? Anybody come up with that one, Courageous? Anybody? Who doesn't believe that about themselves? Nah. <laughs> nice. Okay, good. Because I do. I, I see it all the time in, in people in meetings and, and the men that I sponsor. Absolutely stunning Courage. And honesty, right? Yeah. Um, So it's really important to come up with those character assets and to do it on a really regular basis. Um, in, In the big book somewhere around page 86 or 87 or 88, Bill talks about, you know, reviewing the day at the end of the day and trying to get straight where we've made mistakes but also taking stock of the things that we've done right. Um, really important because I think a big part of what we do is is we build self-esteem. We, we change how we feel about ourselves. And that's a big part of this 10-step process. Um, we're at a point where we've been going for about an hour. Should we take a little break and then you guys um, ask questions or throw things at me later? Should we do that? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's do that. Good.